morning. Can you hear me okay? okay? Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 25, verse 36, chapter 21, verse 1. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came to the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will I ever see again. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos, the word of the Lord. We're in a series in which we're working our way through um, topics that are deeply controversial in our culture, things like gender, sex, sexuality, and marriage. And I've tried to be transparent about what this church believes and practices. Specifically, uh, we hold to the historic Christian conviction that sexual relations are for marriage only. And at, at least the biblical vision of marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, there are huge objections to that, and we've tried to address some of those over the weeks. But one of the biggest objections is that uh, if for whatever reason you're not able to be married and or have sex, then you are being not just deprived, but cruelly deprived of the love, intimacy, and connection that we all need as human beings. This is incredibly important because we were all created for those things. Um, if you don't have the love, intimacy, and connection that we were created for as human beings, you will wither. For instance, I tell this story every few years because it's such a heartbreaking example. Yvette Vickers was a B-movie star in the 1950s. Her most famous film was Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. But over the years, she faded into obscurity and ended up towards the end of her life signing autographs at movie conventions in places like Las Vegas. She um, died in 2010, or at least 
they think she died in 2010 because it wasn't until 2011 that a neighbor finally noticed cobwebs and yellowing letters in her mailbox. They went inside her house and found Yvette, who had been there all by herself for so long that her body was mummified. The most haunting thing about this, though, is that the glow from her computer screen was still lighting up her darkened room. Her only connection with other human beings came from movie fans who had found her on the internet. No family, no friends, no loved ones. She was a lonely person who died a tragically lonely death. If you don't have the love, intimacy, and connection that we were created for as human beings, then you will wither. But is that only available if you're married and or having sex? Last week, we talked about singleness. This week, we're talking about friendship. There are, one of the most countercultural aspects of Christianity is that all of the love, intimacy, and connection that you were created for as human beings is available to you even if you're not married or having sex. And I know that sounds crazy in our world, but there are many places in the Bible that talk about this. In this passage, Paul um, gathers together the elders of the Ephesian church and, because he's going to Jerusalem and he wants to say goodbye to them. Paul started the church in Ephesus. He lived and ministered among them for three years. Now he's leaving, but, but he built deep friendships with them. And this passage is a wonderful picture of that. So let's take a look at this passage and see three aspects of Christian friendship. Uh, these aspects are intimacy, transparency, and constancy. Christian friendship means intimacy. It means transparency. And it means constancy, okay? First, Christian friendship means intimacy. Uh, Paul tells his friends, he says, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, notice Paul says, I was with you. This is a very significant statement. Uh, for instance, there is a place in Mark chapter 3 where it says that Jesus appointed 12, whom he named, also named apostles, so that they might be with him. It's the same exact phrase Paul uses. To be with someone like this means to have all of yourself fully open and fully visible to others. Or we could put it like this. Real intimacy is when you're known all the way down and loved all the way in. Every human being has a deep longing to be fully known and fully loved. And yet our experience as human beings is that you might have one or the other of those things, but we can't possibly have both. Because we might be known, but if that's the, tr the case, then we can't really be loved because nobody could um, love us if they really knew who we are. But we could be loved but the only way someone could love us is if they don't really know who we are. Our deepest longing is to be known and loved, but our greatest fear is that we can't possibly have both. Paul has both. First, Paul is known all the way down. Notice what he says. Uh, he says, the whole time I was with you, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing. Now, when Paul says, I served the Lord with great humility, to us, it sounds like Paul is boasting. 
And the reason is because we think of humility as a virtue. And the reason we think that is because 2,000 years of Christianity has trained us to think of humility as a virtue. But in the ancient world, humility was not a virtue. Humility was not a character trait at all. Humility was a way of describing the inferior, lowly status of servants and slaves. In the ancient world, to be humble was to be weak. And once we understand that, we realize that even in our modern world, we never show people our weakness. We don't show people our tears, as Paul does here. In our world, we want to always project a perfect image out there, especially on social media, so that everybody thinks we have it all together all the time. And yet here, Paul is known all the way down, even into the depths of his weakness and his tears. But Paul is also loved all the way in. Notice he goes on to say, um, or it says that um, they all wept when they said goodbye. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved his friends most was his statement that they would never see his face again. This word embraced literally means they fell on his neck. They hugged him. They kissed him. Do you see how incredibly intimate this picture is? Especially, I mean, we're in a sermon series called Embodied, and we're talking about what it means to be embodied as human beings. Do you notice the physical affection that's happening here? Or I should say the non-sexual physical affection, because in our culture it's almost impossible for us to imagine intimate physical affection that is non-sexual. And yet this passage and many other places in the Bible are showing us that we need this kind of affection even more than we need sex. When I was in my 30s and single, uh, I had two friends, Sam and Jonathan, who were two of the best friends I've ever had in my life. I was a musician. Sam and Jonathan were dancers. Sam and I were single. Jonathan was married with four kids. But we used to get together and just do stuff together all the time. And one of the things we would do is we would get together to share a meal. But even more, we would share our hearts with each other. I remember one evening in particular, uh, we were going to have a meal over at Sam's place. And I don't remember exactly why, but that evening I was feeling really down and discouraged. I did not have it all together. I was feeling weak and afraid and ashamed. And, and I got over to Sam's place, and Jonathan was already there. And as soon as I walked in, I think, I think I just burst into tears. Without saying a word, Sam and Jonathan came over and gave me a big hug. And not just, you know, your typical guy hug that lasts for two seconds and ends with a little bro tap on the back. No. <laughs> They fell on my neck. They wrapped me in their arms and they held me for what in public would have felt like an incredibly uncomfortable period of time. But I will tell you that I have, that is one of the most intimate moments I've ever had in my life and it was exactly what I needed at that time. I didn't need sex. I needed someone to hold me. Sam and Jonathan knew me all the way down and they loved me all the way in. And friends, we all need friendship like that. The gospel and the Bible elevates this kind of friendship. Especially, this is especially countercultural in that 
ancient world, especially a traditional culture that would have said marriage and family, those relationships come before anything else. Jesus relativized that and said, no, your relationship to me and all the other people who follow me, that comes before everything else. The gospel and Christianity pushes back on, um, on the traditional cultural idols of marriage and family, but the gospel also pushes back on our modern cultural idols like romance and sex. It especially pushes back on this idea that the only way you can live a truly fulfilled and flourishing human life is if you're having sex. For instance, Christine Emba writes for the Washington Post. She came out with a book last year called Rethinking Sex. Uh, at one point in the book, she's talking about the other books and TV shows like Sex in the City uh, that have shaped our culture and produced a script that we're all expected to live by. Here's how she describes it. She says, it's a script that says that to be an adult is to be in constant collection of a variety of experiences, especially sexual ones, and that doing so is necessary in order to be mature, self-actualized, and normal. We live in a world that says you can't really be fulfilled and flourishing as a human being unless you're having sex. But the gospel pushes back not only on traditional cultural idols like marriage and family, but modern cultural idols like romance and sex. It says that the intimacy you really need is available to you in friendship and that this is an intimacy that is every bit as fulfilling as marriage or sex. Real intimacy means you can be known all the way down and loved all the way in. And that leads to the second aspect of friendship that we see here. First, we've looked at intimacy, but second, we see here transparency is a part of a Christian friendship. Paul goes on to say this. He says, I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. In other words, Paul is saying, I've always told you the truth you needed to hear. Even if it was a hard truth, I've, I've never stopped being transparent with you. Do you realize what this means? And by the way, here's the thing. Um, Paul is not talking about some private, subjective notion of, of his own truth that he has. Notice in verse 24, he says, The Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news, or literally, the gospel of God's grace. Right after this, he says, For three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. This is a remarkable statement. Paul is saying, I was warning you with tears. In other words, I never stopped bringing the hard, challenging truths of, of the gospel into your lives, but I always did it with tears in my eyes. Friends, here's what this means for us. The gospel gives us a framework for reality, and that reality gives us a power for transformation. Let me unpack that a little bit. First, the gospel gives us a framework for reality. In other words, Christianity answers basic questions um, or gives us basic answers to life's biggest questions. Questions like, what kind of world is this? I mean, is this world all there is, or is there something beyond this world? Or questions like, what kind of beings are we? Are human beings just a bag of chemicals, or are we more than just that? Uh, questions like, what's wrong with the world? And uh, what's the solution to what's wrong with the world? These are 
the basic questions of life, and the gospel gives us basic answers to these questions. Now, someone might say, well, who's to say? No one can really know the answers to these questions. Okay. And yet, we can't walk out the front door of our house without assuming basic answers to these questions. I mean, otherwise, you'd never leave your home. You'd be paralyzed. How should I live? What should I do? <laughs> we can't live our lives without assuming basic answers to these questions. For instance, at the very beginning of this series, you might remember we talked about some of the most basic beliefs in our culture. You see them in this lawn sign that frequently shows up in people's front yard. In this house, we believe black lives matter. Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Love is love. Things like this. These are some of the most basic beliefs in our culture. But this sign assumes basic answers to the biggest questions of life. It assumes that we live in a world where, where things like evil and justice are real, a world where people have dignity and human rights, and a world where we all have an obligation to protect and defend those rights. It, we all, every single one of us at all times, already have basic answers to these biggest questions. In other words, we already have a framework for reality. The question is not whether you have a framework, but what is your framework? The gospel gives us a framework for reality. In fact, Christianity is the foundation for our culture's beliefs in things like justice, personal dignity, and human rights. For instance, Jürgen Habermas is one of the most influential philosophers of the last several decades. He's not a Christian. He is not trying to convert people to Christianity. And yet he says this, the ideals of freedom of conscience, human rights, and democracy are the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. To this day, there is no alternative to it. The gospel gives us a framework for reality, but that reality gives us a power for transformation. Because here's the thing, we all live in a world where people hunger for transformation. The challenge, however, is that even though we live in a world that believes in things like evil, justice, and human rights, our culture also says, yeah, but you should never tell anybody else how to live. Everybody has to figure that out for themselves. Everybody has to listen to their own hearts. And our job as a friend is simply to affirm and support what somebody else's heart is already telling them. For instance, in 2008, a team of researchers from Notre Dame University uh, conducted a research study among hundreds of young people um, about their moral views. And the really astounding thing was not that these young people were living immoral lives. They weren't. The astounding thing was that many of these young people couldn't even understand the questions. So, for instance, um, one of the questions was they asked people to describe a moral dilemma they were having. Two-thirds of the people either couldn't answer the question or they described a problem they were having that wasn't moral at all, like how to keep your cat from peeing in your house or what to do if you don't have enough money for the parking meter, things like that. Over and over again, their default assumption was that all morality is entirely subjective and you should never tell someone else how to live their life. For instance, one of the interviewees said this, I guess what makes something right is how I feel about it, but different people feel different ways, so I couldn't speak on behalf of anyone else as to what's right and wrong. This is pretty much the official party line 
in our culture. This was true 15 years ago. It's even more true today. You should never tell anyone else how to live. And yet, we hunger for transformation. We hunger for someone to speak into our lives and to offer us a path for transformation. That's why Instagram influencers and YouTubers are making millions of dollars because we need someone to speak truth into our lives, to, to be transparent with us and offer us a path for transformation. Friends, that is exactly what Paul is showing us here. The gospel doesn't say, hey, whatever works for you. My job as your friend is simply to affirm and support whatever your heart is telling you no. Paul is saying, I never stopped warning you about the truth of the gospel, and yet I always did it with tears in my eyes. Friends, we need friends who will do this for us. And the gospel gives us not just the framework for reality, but the power for this kind of transformation. Because here's the thing, the gospel, you know, the most amazing thing about the gospel is that, remember Paul says it's a gospel of grace. A gospel of grace. What does that mean? Every Instagram influencer, every YouTuber, every religion, every spiritual path that's out there, as far as I've ever been able to discover, every single one of them is telling you about a power inside of yourself that you already have for transformation. They're telling you about something you must do in order to transform your life. But the gospel does not tell you about something you must do to transform your life, whether it's making your bed or meditating for 12 hours a day. The gospel doesn't tell you about a power that's already inside of you. It tells you about a Savior named Jesus who comes into your life from outside of you with a power to transform your life. Friends, Christian friendship means intimacy. It means you can be known all the way down and loved all the way in, but it also means transparency. It means being honest enough to share the hard truths of the gospel with your friends. And then when you see someone veering away from Jesus, you, you love them enough to, um, to speak that hard truth into their lives, but you always do it with tears in your eyes. And that leads to the last thing we see here this morning. Christian friendship means intimacy. Second, it means transparency. But last, it means constancy. You know, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem to preach the gospel, and he knows that he is going to be arrested and very possibly executed for preaching the gospel. And so he tells his friends this. He says, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Paul is in distress. His friends are also in distress. Notice it says, what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And yet, what did they do in response to this? Did they say, well, Paul sucks to be you, but hey, we'll be praying for you. No. It says this, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea. In other words, Paul's friends can't let go of him. They won't let go of him. He literally had to tear himself away from them. Friends, this is constancy. And we all need friends like this. For instance, in Proverbs 18.24, it says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know, we might all have a lot of different companions and um, friends in our lives, but when your life starts falling apart, all of a sudden they're nowhere to be found. Have you ever experienced that? Especially in our modern world, which says, hey, you know, um, our relationships are increasingly based on transaction. 
We live in a world that is full of transactional relationships. That means that in our culture, we say, hey, if a relationship is working for you, then you stick around. But the moment it stops working for me, then you are perfectly justified to leave that relationship. The gospel says no. Christianity says friendship means that in all the little tiny details of your life, in all the hidden moments of despair and weakness and tears and and hardship, and especially when your life is falling apart, you need the constancy of a friend who is there for you, especially when it doesn't work for them. On 9-11, two United States Marines were crawling over the rubble of the World Trade Center looking for survivors. It was so dangerous that a firefighter called out to them and yelled to them to come back. But one of the Marines, a fellow named Jason Thomas, he, he yelled back at the firefighter and said, we're, you, we're Marines. We don't go backwards. We go forward. So they're crawling over the rubble, calling out, United States Marines, is anyone there? When they heard a voice. Two Port Authority police officers were trapped down a 50-foot hole. And the Marines were standing there realizing that what they needed at that moment was someone to get down the hole to start administering first aid while they started digging them out. As it so happened, an out-of-work paramedic who was also struggling to recover from crack addiction at the time, a guy named Chuck Sereka, just happened to be coming along the rubble, and he went down the hole and started administering first aid while the Marines started digging them out. There was so much fire and smoke in the hole that the Marines had to keep coming out of the hole just to clear their lungs. This happened over and over again. In fact, there was so much fire and smoke in the hole that the whole thing was in danger of collapsing at any moment, and they all knew it. In fact, later, Chuck Sereka said, every cell in my body said, get out of here. But they found out that one of the police officers, a fellow named Will Himeno, that his wife was six months pregnant with their little baby girl. And Jason Thomas, the Marine, said, you know, I grew up my whole life with my mom telling me, you are your brother's keeper. Never leave your brother behind. So they all told Will and the other police officer, listen, we are not leaving this hole without you. If you die, we all die here with you. (laughs) And uh, before he went back down into the hole, Jason Thomas, the Marine, had a disposable camera in his pocket. And he took a picture of himself. You can barely even see it because of the smoke in the air at the time. He took a picture of himself for his family in case he didn't make it out, put it on the ledge of the rubble, and went back down in the hole, not knowing if he was ever coming out again. But they did. They all did. Constancy means you never leave your friends in the hole. It means saying to your friends, if you die, we all die here with you. Where are you going to find a friendship like this? I can't offer you any surefire prescription for how to get a friend like this. I can only tell you that the gospel calls each one of us to be a friend like this. And the reason we can do it is because we already have the ultimate friend. In the gospel of John, chapter 15, on the night before he was arrested and crucified, Jesus told his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. 
Jesus is the friend of friends. He's the friend of sinners. He's the ultimate friend that we all need. There is no greater love than laying down your life for your friend. And Jesus is the friend of friends. But the truly amazing thing about the gospel is that in his moment of greatest need, Jesus laid down his life for friends who failed him in his moment of greatest distress. Because just a little bit after this, Jesus led his disciples to a garden called Gethsemane. And he took his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and he told them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Would you just stay here with me and watch with me? And then he went and he prayed, but when he came back, you know the story, they'd all fallen asleep. Even more tragically, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, all of his friends ran away and abandoned him. Do you realize what this means? Even the God of the universe who came to earth as a human being needed friends. And the most amazing thing about the gospel is that in his moment of greatest distress and need, when all his friends failed him, when all Jesus' friends left him in the hole, Jesus couldn't tear himself away from them. Those two Marines and that paramedic laid their life on the line to save Will Himeno and his friend. But Jesus gave his life on the cross to save you and me. Jesus is the friend of friends. He's the ultimate friend because the cross is the ultimate place where we're known all the way down. Because the cross means that God sees you in the depths of your weakness and your tears. He also sees the depths of your failures and your sins. But the cross is also the place, the ultimate place, where we're loved all the way in. Because not only does God see the the truth about you, the gospel gives us a Savior who sees all the truth about us, and yet he lays down his life for us. And because we have a friend like that who's there for us, we can be a friend like that for others. Dear ones, Christian friendship means intimacy. That you can be known all the way down and loved all the way in. It means transparency. That you can be honest with your friends, sharing with them the hard truths of the gospel they they need to hear. But you always do it with tears in your eyes. And Christian friendship means constancy, that you never leave your friend in the hole. Because you have a Savior who perished in a fiery hole just so he could pull you out. Do you see Jesus doing that for you? Do you know his friendship? And will you go and be a friend like that for others? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your friendship. That all the love, all the intimacy, all the connection, all the affirmation, all the welcome and belonging that our hearts were created for and so desperately need, Lord, that all of that is ours in Jesus. We thank you for that this morning. And we pray that you would help us to know more and more deeply the intimacy, transparency, and constancy of our friend Jesus, our Savior and Lord Jesus, so that we might go out and provide the same intimacy, transparency, and constancy to those around us, Father. And that in so doing, Lord, you would build up our friendships, not just in this church, but in the world around us, Father. For this world desperately needs this kind of love, this kind of intimacy, this kind of connection, and this kind of um, friendship. Lord, we praise you for it. We thank you for it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.